You're listening to The New Yorker Out Loud. I'm Blake Eskin, editor of NewYorker.com. This week, The Art of Translation. I strongly advise people not to read literature in translation, because I know what happens in the process. In the September 5th issue of The New Yorker, there's a short story by Haruki Murakami, translated by Jay Rubin. Also in the issue, David Remnick comments on Libya. Rebecca Mead spends four hours or so with the self-help author Timothy Ferris. And Alex Ross watches a rediscovered opera about the Holocaust. This week, we have a piece of fiction called Town of Cats by Haruki Murakami, who has been publishing in The New Yorker since 1990. Jay Rubin has been translating Murakami's stories and novels for about that long. He worked on Murakami's latest novel, 1Q84, which comes out here in October. Jay Rubin joins me by phone from Seattle to discuss Murakami's work and his own work as a translator. Welcome to The New Yorker Out Loud, Jay. Thanks very much. I, w- I want to start with this week's story, Town of Cats. What is it about cats and Murakami? We ran another story in The New Yorker called Man Eating Cats, and, and I believe the jazz club he opened was named after his own cat named Peter Cat. Is this a motif in his work? It's not only in his work, it's on his walls. <laughs> he has pictures of cats, and he's just somewhat obsessed with cats. He doesn't actually keep one anymore, I think, because he does so much traveling. But, uh, yeah, he loves cats. I used to be able to tell that he had been around a cat if any piece of paper that he gave me later caused me to sneeze. So in this story uh, this week, the main character goes to visit his father, And on the train, he reads a story about a man who finds himself in a strange town full of cats. When the sun starts to go down, many cats come trooping across the bridge, cats of all different kinds and colors. They are much larger than ordinary cats, but they are still cats. The young man is shocked to see this spectacle. He rushes into the bell tower in the center of town and climbs to the top to hide. The cats go about their business, raising the shop shutters or seating themselves at their desks to start their day's work. Soon, more cats come, crossing the bridge into town like the others. They enter the shops to buy things or go to the town hall to handle administrative matters or eat a meal at the hotel restaurant or drink beer at the tavern and sing lively cat songs. Now, Murkami tells us there's an interview on NewYorker.com with him, which I believe you also translated, that, that he invented this German story that the main character is reading on the train. Is this kind of story within a story structure something Murkami does often? God, if there's any one thing that's, that's uh, typical of his writing, it's that, stories within stories. And, and so this story, the story about the town of Katz, resonates with the story of Tango going to see his father. How, how directly do those play off of each other? That's a good question. And I think it leaves, even this, this excerpt that we have here leaves things rather up in the air. I know that there are several points later in the book where another character who knows that Tengo went to visit his father refers to that, that event as his having gone to the town of Kent. And, and his father, I mean, not to ruin it too much for people, but his father is basically losing his, his memory. He's getting older. So when they call it going to the town of cats, it's basically that his father is in this almost alternate reality. Is that what you mean? Absolutely, yeah. That, again, is another very consistent 
theme in, in Murakami. Now, Town of Cats comes out of this latest novel, 1Q84, which comes out here in October. Uh, it came out in Japan, I think, a couple of years ago. Can you tell us how the book was received there? <laughs> with hysteria. <laughs> so with hysteria, meaning like Harry Potter-level hysteria? Yeah, people lining up at bookstores, waiting for the, the moment uh, for the book to go on sale, millions within a few weeks. What is it about Murakami's writing that, that inspires this kind of fanaticism in, in his readers? Everybody, including me, has a, a terribly personal sense that Murakami is borrowing into their minds and, and writing just for them. Is it the same thing that got to you, that, that got you interested in translating him? I came to Murakami under protest. I had seen his books piled up in the bookstore and figured he was just another pop writer. And, and this would be in Japanese bookstores? Or, oh, yeah, yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. This was long, long before he, he was published here. It was an American publisher who kind of forced me to read Murakami because they had gotten a translation of what came out later as Hard-Boiled Wonderland and the End of the World. And they wanted someone who could read the original to read the book and give them an opinion on it based on the original rather than based on the translation. And I figured, well, what the hell, I'll see what this junky stuff is all about and give them a report. Well, this was such a great book, I decided that not only did I urge them to publish it, but I urged them to to let me translate it if, (laughs) if by any chance the translation they got sent to them was no good. And it turns out they ignored me on both counts. They decided not to publish it. Now, of course, the question of my being the translator was moot at that point. And when was it? Maybe a year later, Alfred Birnbaum's translation came out of uh, Hardwell Wonderland and the End of the World. There are some people in, in, in Japan and elsewhere who feel like Murakami isn't really serious, that it's too sort of pop cultural. How do you respond to that kind of criticism? Not too many people say that anymore about Murakami. I think especially since the Wind-Up Bird Chronicle. Mm-hmm. That clearly is a serious book. It, it involves some very serious thought about Japan's role in the world, about what Japan did during the Second World War, the scars that are left in the Japanese psyche from that. This is not a pop writer, surely, from that point of view. And then when you realize that he's got a very serious purpose in books from that period, and you start looking back at his earlier writing, you see that he was, you know, in a playful kind of way, always dealing with those those issues. One, I think, his very earliest short story, called "Slow Boat to China," it was early on dismissed as something that really doesn't tell us anything about about China or the Chinese. And uh, you realize later that he has such a strong sense of the the evils that were perpetrated by Japan in China during the Second World War, that he is, in fact, writing about that very indirectly and with humor, even in his earliest story. 1Q84 is made up of three parts. You translated the first two, and then I think, believe Philip Gabriel translated the third section. H- how do you divide things up, and, and why are they divided up that way? Oh, the questions involving... These things, with regard to this book, people people are looking for some deep meaning, but uh, it's really very practical. It was a matter of sheer uh, time constraints that uh, they knew that if if one person did the whole thing, it would just take forever for the book to come out. It would have been 
another year, a year and a half, maybe, for before the book could come out. Mm-hmm. So I, I started out with book one, and around the time that I started working on book two, book three came out, and so Phil got started on book three while I was doing book two. Uh-huh. And, and how do you guys coordinate? Uh... <laughs> we don't. I, I sent him my earlier books, and he saw some of the translation choices I made, and he chose to go with some of them, and he, not so much with others. And then we have a, uh, a Knopf editor who went through the whole thing over and over again and uh, tried to make it as consistent as possible. How closely are you working with Murakami as you're doing this? Because he reads English. I know he translates books out of English. Um, is he going over your uh, work closely, or is it mostly just the editors? I guess I don't send it to him until I send in the text of a whole book. But I'm constantly sending him email questions. The worst thing I ever did to him when I translated... The first novel I translated of his was The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle. And I saved all my questions till it was completely done. But I got together with him. I was in Tokyo at the time and uh, drove him absolutely crazy for a whole day giving him one little question after another. You know, like the, the, the eyeglass frames in this scene are black, but two chapters later they're brown. Did you do that on purpose, or did you? should I make them both black? You know, all of these little inconsistencies and, th- and things of that sort. This is not a very kind thing to do to an author <laughs> all day long, and he was really exhausted by the end of the day. Not that, not that I wasn't tired, too, but uh, any time after, after that first book, I've learn to simply send him queries as they come up. So those, those we handle through email. You have the privilege of reading him in Japanese. I want to ask you what's untranslatable about him. Pretty much everything. <laughs> <laughs> I strongly advise people not to read literature in translation because I know what happens in the process. People don't like to hear this, and I, I know I, I gave a talk at a bookstore a couple of years ago about another book I had translated, and people got very grumpy when I told them that they were at my mercy, that they are totally at the mercy of the translator. Everything they are reading has been filtered through the brain of the translator, and it's his words they're reading. Thank goodness nobody follows my advice and goes out and learns Japanese. That, that way I still have something to do. <laughs> it's a very, very subjective process, and... I know I'm thought of as someone who sticks very close to the original. Murakami himself has said that, but uh, I don't think it's anything like his writing when you get right down to it. It's uh, an interesting imitation, maybe. On the other hand, he's got how many translators? Three active translators. And there's a certain something that comes through in all of us. and we We all have very different styles, but he still has a recognizable voice. Well, Jay, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Jay Rubin is the translator of Haruki Murakami. He worked on Murakami's new book, 1Q84, which comes out in October. You can read Haruki Murakami's story, Town of Cats, in the September 5th issue of The New Yorker. You can also find, if you're a subscriber, that story and other stories by Murakami on our website, newyorker.com. And now, if you're a subscriber anywhere in the world, even in Japan... You can get the magazine on your iPad at no additional cost. You can subscribe to this and other free New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes store. And if you're already a subscriber, please tell your friends about it or leave us a review on iTunes. 
The weekly audio edition of The New Yorker is available from audible.com. The New Yorker Out Loud podcast is produced by newyorker.com with Curtis Fox Productions. For The New Yorker, this is Blake Eskin. 